Good morning. It's uh, good to see everyone and, uh, you know, show up and the parking lot's full or getting there. and uh, It is a blessing to see that. I, I am a preacher after all, so uh, it's always nice encouragement to realize that the fact that you're going to say a few things doesn't chase everybody off. So thankful that I don't have that much influence, especially in a negative way. But uh, we'll be in Deuteronomy chapter 1 uh, this morning. And spend a little time there uh, talking a little bit about that. It may be sort of a quick shift, uh, studying the Psalms of a metaphorical song nature and then flipping over to the law of Moses, right? The Torah. And uh, maybe it won't be too uh, quick of a shift, although all of it's really connected. And and, um, as we know, as a teacher, there are people who learn in much different ways. Uh, You go from the hands-on to hearing to copying notes, and I'm one of those, I think, uh, in some ways it may be a blessing, in others it's, it may be a curse, but uh, I need to hear all of them. I need all the approaches uh, for it to sink in, and so I appreciate all of my teachers through the years uh, meeting me in those, and I think that's a Holy Spirit thing, uh, that uh, it's not cookie cutter for everyone. Obviously, the Holy Spirit's not going to go against the Word of God, uh, but we all need different things at different places. And we all need each other at different places. And I think uh, it is the height of pride, and it's the height of a lie that's been sold to us that we don't need each other, that we don't need, that we can be individualistic, and we certainly can. There's a lot of liberty in the Bible to do that. Uh, But over and over again, it speaks to the need for one another. We need to gather. We need to talk about the darkness of the world, but also the light that has been given us, a, a responsibility. I think we picked that up. In the book of Deuteronomy, um, you know, everyone has a belief. It is guided by their beliefs. We call those core beliefs. You know, there are things that we say, and then there are things that we do every single day. And uh, I think one of the difficulties of being a preacher and having preacher's kids in my home is that it's very easy for them to see me say one thing and live out something else. And I think that's always been the PK problem uh, is they're going to see those things. They're going to see me in a way that no one else sees me, and then they're required to live to a higher standard that they never signed up for, uh, and certainly without somebody who can guide them into the perfect way. And so I am very thankful for the Holy Spirit. I'm also thankful for the Torah. And as we get into Deuteronomy, uh, the Greek words that make up Deuteronomy mean second law, uh, our second teaching. Moses actually calls it this in Deuteronomy 17 in verse 18. So it can be confusing. We have a lot of the Greek names for the books of the Bible, and uh, some of them were written in Hebrew. And uh, maybe there's some, you know, when you start looking at the Hebrew Bible and what they call it and how it goes, it can be kind of confusing and different. Uh, but this book includes the three final addresses from Moses. Uh, this is his last will and testament. This is what he wants to be his lasting uh, legacy to the people. He's experienced uh, the lean times, heavily in the lean times. And then as we continue to study the book, he warns them of the problems and the future issues that will come with the liberty of being in the promised land. And so when we struggle, the temptation is to shake our fist at God. And when we are successful, our temptation is to give him no credit. Uh, in our successes. And that's a human thing. It goes all the way back to the garden, right? Uh, This is my garden that I have given you, and I require you not to eat of one tree. And where did we find ourselves? Right there 
at that one tree, wanting to be our own God in some shape, form, or fashion, and to kind of make the rules up. And I thought it was very good. The uh, I don't know if you guys made it in here in time to see the slide of Moses presenting the Ten Commandments and the people going, can we vote on some of these things? And while it wasn't necessarily that way, they absolutely voted on some of these things. And they voted individually. Uh, where they may not have had a democracy as we speak of democracy and certainly maybe not a representative republic, uh, but they did vote. And we vote. We vote on the things that we think are truth. Even though we may stand up here, I would stand up here and tell you that the Bible is God's truth. There have been times and there will be in the future where I vote and make decisions on which ones pertain to me and which ones pertain to you. (laughs) And they may change based on what day it is. And so there was a vote, uh, and, and it, sometimes they spoke verbally. We accept these laws. We want to follow the Lord. And then, you know, just a few chapters later, they're doing quite the opposite. We'll see that if you study, go on to study Joshua. That certainly happens. Uh, but in verse 5, and we'll look at that, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 1, uh, verse 1, we'll start there. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness, and Arabah opposite of Suf between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dis-Ahab. Now, any of you that can locate that on a map, I'd like to talk to you. Uh, it is 11 days' journey from Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, by the way, uh, by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them after he had defeated Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who lived and Ashtaroth and Edri, beyond the Jordan. Now, this is one of the things that kind of gives scholars pause uh, because we're taught and we believe that Moses did not enter the promised land. And so some of these places beyond the Jordan, people think, well, did he go in the promised land? What's the deal here? I don't think it's all that big of an issue, but it is something uh, that has been debated. You know, did he write every one of these? Was it orally, traditionally handed down and Maybe they entered the promised land and then all these things were written down. Uh, maybe not by Moses, but by someone else's hand. Uh, once again, I, I don't think that's a, just a huge deal that a lot of people make it out to be. Uh, but I did want to make a note of that. So in your study, if you come along that, be like, he didn't tell us about that. So there you go. Uh, in verse 5, it talks about how he expounded. And what that means is, is quite literally the second teaching. He is going back through before they enter the promised land, trying to encourage these people to trust in the Lord, as the spies had not done, at least ten of them, that he's going to do what he said he's going to do. And as he expounds, there's a little bit here talked about being translated. Uh, One of the Hebrew traditional ways of talking about the nations was the 70 nations, which is interesting because later when Peter asks, how many times should we forgive? 70 times 7. Basically, over and over again, as many people as there are in the world. That is how much we should be willing to forgive. And so that's probably the first note that really hits home for us. Uh, They were obligated to bring the Torah to the world. To bring the Torah to the world. And what is the Torah? Well, it represents order in chaos. You go Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The the world was without form. It was void. And let there be light. And we'll get to that. And that's already been mentioned some today. 
in our scripture readings, uh, in our prayers, uh, to be the light to the world. We are called, as the new Israel, to bring the light to the world. And that is as old as Deuteronomy and really Genesis chapter 1. And so as we study the Old Testament, we start finding these themes like that we've always claimed. Those are very Christian themes, and they are, but they're also very Jewish themes. And it comes with the responsibility. In verse 8, we jump down to see, See, I've set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them and to their offspring after them. And I want us to really focus on what's the purpose of the promised land. We oftentimes can get so focused, and I think we've done this with heaven, that we're so focused about getting people into Christ, and, and that's certainly an important thing, the important thing, that sometimes we, after we get them into Christ, we kind of just leave them alone to figure it out. Discipleship is not really an individualistic thing. It is to some degree, and we all have a responsibility of, of our own to seek out the truth and to study God's Word, but there is a, a part of that that is done in the whole as a group. We have done that this morning in our Bible classes. There's a reason why we call it intergenerational, where God would just look at it and call this is biblical. You know, we, we come up with these great names, and it is a great name because it tells us what it is. There's no reason to really decide and even tell what it is. We just get it, but it's a biblical approach. It is together. We rub off on one another. We see people struggle and they live in certain ways that it encourages us that the struggle, when it comes, we do the same. That we, we learn by example. And sometimes it's the way we shouldn't do it, and sometimes it's the way we should. And, and so me being a parent, I'm not presenting the way it has to be done. I'm presenting it in a way it can be done. And then everybody else gets to decide, was that the way we want to do it? Is that the approach that we want? I can't tell you how many people who've gone on before me who taught me how to struggle well. Who taught me how to struggle well. But you see, we live in a world in the day and age where we try to remove the struggle. We want to live a life that is just streamlined and there are no issues. And I'm not saying we should go out and seek to make our lives harder than they have to be. But we put a tremendous amount of effort to remove any obstacle that we might face. And so then when one comes along, we're crushed by it. We don't want to deal with it. You know, a counselor's job is not to, to remove every obstacle. It's, it's to coach someone on how to deal with them when they show up. That's a very biblical approach. You're, you're going to get hurt. You're going to have scars. You're going to have emotional pain. No matter where you go. Even if you lock yourself in a closet, guess what? You're going to have an emotional pain because you don't know how to deal with things. It's coming. It's our response that truly matters. What's the purpose of the promised land? Jesus nails it in Matthew chapter 5, and verse 14. A city set on a hill it's to show the light to the world. They were called to be the people of God in the midst of an untoward generation. And they were called to do that. They were given these rules. It wasn't just so they could go and have an easy life. No. It was so they could go and see God conquer the obstacles and carry them through them. Instead, we get so focused on avoiding them that we miss out on who's carrying us through them. 
He wants us to see that. We shouldn't be shocked that Jesus nails it because He's the embodiment of what we are called to be. Isaiah chapter 49 and verse 6, we are to be a light unto the nations. We as new Israel take on the responsibilities of old Israel and we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to accomplish those things. That even when we fall short and we fail, there's a way in which God can still receive the glory. How many things as a school have we failed at? That if failure was the final say, we would be done a long time ago. And yet, what happens when we have success in the face of shortcomings? God receives the glory. In Matthew chapter 21, Jesus reminds them of what is going to happen if we are not the light we're called to be. It's not without failure. I just said that, right? There are going to be obstacles. There are going to be issues. There are going to be things that feel like they're going to crush us. And maybe they do. But even if we're killed and we raise on the final day as the dead in Christ will do first, who will really be revealed as the loser? The true failure is the one who does not turn to God and trust Him. And Jesus does that in Matthew 21, this parable of the vineyard. He's warning them just as Moses, hey, you're getting this promised land, but there are responsibilities that come with it. It's to be the light of the world. And if you're not, God will take it away from you and give it to someone else. And Jesus is telling them, you are about to lose this. It doesn't have anything to do with who your dad is or your ethnicity anymore. It's about, are you the light to the world? And this vineyard, right? He sends his son. They kill his son. And then Jesus goes, what are they going to do? What are the Romans going to do? What, what is God going to do? Romans 8 tells us, right? You want Jesus in your corner. He wants to be in your corner. He wants to be for you so badly that he died a terrible, horrible death so that he can be in your corner regardless of what comes. And to deny that and to kill him, as Hebrews says, we, we, we put him to the cross again. Oh my goodness. The wrath of God that is to come on those who do not accept Jesus as Lord will make what we determine the Old Testament God wrath not even worth mentioning. Because we've had every opportunity to be the light of the world. Every opportunity. There is zero excuse. He's removed all of them. There is no. When did we see you, Lord? When you saw the poor, and the downtrodden, and the people that are even maybe by their own decisions in a bad place, and you chose to see me instead, then you've truly been the light of the world. Genesis, or verse 10 of chapter 1. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. And that's a great verse. I don't know that I'll ever think of that or Philippians 2, Laura, without thinking about your award that you give out to your drama kids every year. Uh, you have officially taken over that, right? That's what I'll think about. He, this is him saying, I, I've kept my commitment to Abraham in Genesis 22, verse 17. If I, com if I committed to Abraham, who, who didn't have all of these laws and didn't have all the moral uh, pinnings that I've given you, am I going to keep my promise to you? But even in then, as stars, what, are the, what, what is their responsibility? There's a responsibility with that, right? 
Philippians 2, and we'll get to that in just a minute. What is he saying? He said, you can shine like stars. Why? So that God be glorified. That's what Jesus said. You do your good works. Why? Not to be acceptable to God. Right? You've been accepted to God through Jesus. You do those things so that God, people will see those things and go, wow. I was telling somebody yesterday, I don't know how many members this church had when y'all decided to start a school, but I know it wasn't as many as a lot of churches. And that would have been insane. None of them would have, that would have never even entered their brain to do the thing that this church decided to do. And that's awesome. And it's a great story that somebody needs to write down, by the way. It's wonderful. But it's a trust in God. Does that mean that when you gave it over to the Lord that all the problems of starting a school just went away? No. We're still living in that journey today. And we will continue as long as the Lord says, hey, that school will stand. But it's not to make us acceptable to God. We've already been accepted to God. It's so that others will see what's going on and go, man, isn't God good? You know, if one person, and we, we baptize several people, if one person is turned towards God through this school, it's worth all the 20 plus whatever years it's been. Because somebody in that moment said, God be glorified. God gets the glory when people turn to Him. In it. So we're called to be stars in the sky. Daniel 12.3 makes a reference. Philippians 2, which we'll get to, also makes that statement. Verse 13, what does it take to make a good society? Choose for your tribes wise, understanding, and experienced men, and I will appoint them as your heads. It's almost like Moses could have given us the, uh, the qualifications of deacons and elders. It's almost like it's not a new thing. It's been around a long time. But notice wisdom. Wisdom. I know a lot of churches who've picked their leaders because someone was a good businessman. And then we were stunned when the church was run like an efficient business and not as a people who believe in the Lord. Wisdom is so important. A good society, a good tribe, a good church, however you want to define that, a well done, maybe that's a better phrase, is, is determined by the wisdom that's found there. Not the papers on the wall from great universities, and I've got one. Right? Not the, it's wisdom. It's what they do with the experiences they've had. If we have no fixed moral code, no God-based ethic, and a lack of wisdom, that is a demonic combination. And folks, we're headed that direction. If we're not already there. We have more knowledge at our fingertips than any society that's ever existed. And what have we done with it? We've made it a point of decreasing our wisdom because we can't decipher, we can't discern. And there are, there are a lot of people out there who would love nothing more than us to stay undiscerning. And Satan is the chief. He does not want us to find out how to find the truth. And he certainly doesn't want us seeking around and nosing around in the Bible to find it. But wisdom is something that doesn't come with a piece of paper. It comes with an experience with a God who is so amazing and so awe-inspiring that it can't help but impact the way we live our lives and the decisions we make. We must not confuse wisdom with knowledge. It's a mistake that has brought down a many a man <laughs> and many people. Verses 15 through 17, by definition, justice 
means equal justice. I hate that we have so marred justice one way or the other that we have to qualify it. I hate the phrase social justice. I hate it. And it's not for what some people think I hate it for. It's because one way or the other, we've extremely went in the wrong direction. So now we have to qualify it. It should just be justice to us as human beings. James speaks to it at length. You don't give this person more attention because they're poor, they're wealthy, whatever your decision is, to make them bigger in your sight. God is not a respecter of persons. And God's justice will be equal to all. And there's a flip side of that, of punishment. There's also a flip side of that for salvation. I'm so glad it doesn't have anything to do with my ability to play guitar. Right? You know, we want to judge people. And if you judge a fish based on how it can climb a tree, it's terrible. But we do that, right? And to some degrees, for society to exist, we have to do that. It's a merit-based thing. And I'm like chief on that. Let's get the best. Somebody's going to do surgery on me, I want the best. I don't care if they're the first whatever. I want the best surgeon. Now, there's nothing wrong with them being the first whatever to be a surgeon, but I want the best. All that stuff doesn't matter when it comes down to that. But we have a God who goes, hey, I gave you all those abilities and talents. And all I want from you is to be that light to the world. Proverbs 15.33, Proverbs 19.24, the fear of the Lord sets the priority. When Jesus made the statement in Matthew 10, 28, Fear not that which can kill the body, but fear him who can kill the body and the soul. It is a priority matter. If we fear the Lord and we respect what he can do first and foremost, it sets the table for everything else. Which is why so many governments and powers and authorities don't want no part of God taught anywhere. Because if I'm more committed to God than the government or this teaching, or this group of people, then nobody can make me do what they want me to do. Why do you think the communists want God out? Why do you think our ruling elite don't want God in our schools? Because there can be no commitment greater than to them. That's why. And so, whatever, if you have to be a part of those systems... You better make sure that your kids are getting what they need when it comes to the Lord. Those things can be done. I'm standing here a product of one. And I love God. But it's because I had a body of believers who poured into me all the time the importance of the wisdom found in fearing God first. There's a reason why we put God first. Because if God is first, all the priorities are set. We can add secularism, high education, and affluence, and it produces a people who are terrified of emotional pain above anything else. Can you imagine the emotional pain that we will suffer when we don't hear from the Lord, well done, thou good and faithful servant? (laughs) There are a lot of pains in life, and you guys could give me a list of some that might turn my hair gray. And for that, I want you to know we're here as a body to serve you in that and to suffer with you and to climb those obstacles one step at a time, empowered by God who loves you. But it is time to stop being fearful of the things God has not told us to be fearful of. And that list is very small 
and it starts with him. You are going to hurt. And as a tigger, and as somebody who wants to be happy all the time, there is one that is, I hate saying that. Job is one of my least favorite books. Ecclesiastes is one of my least favorite books because what does it tell us? You are going to suffer. But you never have to suffer alone unless you choose to. Paul in Philippians chapter 2. I want to read that, verse 12, and we're going to go through 18, and then we'll wrap up our time together. And I thank you for your patience and your attention. Well, in Philippians chapter 2, we see a man whose priority list is set by fear of the Lord. A man sitting in prison, and not the fancy ones we have today. There's no TV, there's no entertainment. To a large degree, people believe he probably sat in a hole in the ground and they just gave him his food in that hole. And probably somebody else wrote the words of Philippians down as he dictated it to them or told them what to write. He says these words, verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Sounds like a man who who knows the end is near, much like Moses in Deuteronomy 1. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for what? His good pleasure. What is your priority today? Whose pleasure? Because I can admit wholeheartedly there are most days that I spend about Travis's pleasure and what makes him feel good. And that's my number one goal. And then the Holy Spirit shows up and wrecks all that. And then I, sometimes I'm happy about that, sometimes I'm not. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. That grumbling or questioning, that probably is enough to keep me busy today, just trying not to grumble and complain without getting anybody else's business holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. If I didn't know the context of that chapter, there's no way that I would say, that guy's sitting in a jail cell. That guy's being detained because what's his focus? What's his priority? Who does he fear? He fears the God who blinded him on the way to do what he wanted to do, what he thought was right, which we've all been there, right? I thought this was right, but it's not. And he says, it's my good pleasure to do his good pleasure. I want to look at Paul in a jail cell and go, man, that must be pleasurable experience. Then we read in the book of Acts, in prison, what do they do? They sing praises to God. James tells us, is there anything to celebrate? Are you happy? Are you joyful? Sing. Are you sick? Call the elders. Call the church. Give that over to a body of believers. And guess what we're about to do? We're going to sing a song. And you may be at the top of your game. Your relationship with Jesus might be exactly where it needs to be. And guess what? You can sing that song with joy. 
Or maybe you're sitting there and you're going, man, there's so many things that I wish were better that I don't even know where the list starts. Guess what? There's a God who does. The same God who gives us all those rules in Deuteronomy. He knows all the things you're going through. And He knows what you need. But it's simply going, I know that you know what I need and I want to turn to you. So whatever circumstance you're in, there's a truth for you. And it's in the Bible. It's the Holy Spirit. We're going to sing this song to encourage you wherever you're at that you can share with us and that we won't use that as a way to separate you from us but draw you closer to us because there's probably somebody in this room that have been through something similar. You know, Mike gives us his updates and I'm like, hey man, I know about that. (laughs) I know the same people. And so there's a joy there. There's a rejoicing in the fact that even in the midst of our suffering, there's somebody out there that Jesus has brought through to the other side. And we call out to you now as we stand and sing to to fulfill the greatest role we can, and that's to be the hands and feet of Jesus. If you need something, we're going to give you the opportunity to share that in just a moment after we sing.